Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, Nico here. You can find me at Nico Action, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, X is for podcast. We're doing as Guardians of the Galaxy. Go. I'm TK, Twitter and Instagram, X-Nate, X-Gray-X. We have to just move right into it. There's as Guardians, they guard the galaxy. We have to at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's getting adorable how hard we've worked to put this off and not really actually work to put this off. It's one of those things where, you know, as we're trying to figure out what this show is going to be and we're navigating it and we're sort of developing the voice, I always thought this was going to be covered like directly following Homefront 5 through 7 which was like that next appearance of Thunderstrike after his series so I thought this was going to go in episode 17 but here we are in episode 24 finally getting to Cullen Bunn, Matteo Loli and Federico Bleas as Guardians of the Galaxy. I have given the credits on this title a thousand times but it's Cullen Bunn, Matteo Loli, Federico Blee, Andre Lima, Arujo, Jill Thompson, Mike Del Mundo, Eric Arsenier and Natasha Bustos, Luca Maresca, Stephanie Hans, Matteo Buffagini, and Paola Villanelli, along with Corey Pettit, lettering all of it. Sales from 41000 to uh, about as low as 16000 give or take. Ten issues came out October 2018 to August 2019, and literally all ten issues either fit into Infinity Wars as a tie-in or War of the Realms as a tie-in. All right, we're caught up. We can finally do this. Let's jump into a title that, again, not that I didn't love it, but I think I cerebrally liked it more than emotionally loved it. And that's kind of not the standard on this particular show. I think maybe I emotionally loved it more than I cerebrally liked it. I felt like a lot of this stuff made sense to me on like a yeah level. But then like as I'm reading the book itself, I'm just not seeing logistically how it is meant to go the distance. It just feels like it was like somebody had a contractual obligation by which a book had to be made. And they were like, I don't know, I guess this one. Sure. Like all these characters had to appear or they would like lose IP license to them. And they're like, I don't know, I guess just put them in a book. It's really funny. We've actually had this almost verbatim conversation about using Thunderstrike in the Marvel Universe before where we were like, you know, is this miniseries really a thing? Are they just trying to use a property? And I actually think it might be the opposite. Some ways I feel feel that Cullen Bunn went to Marvel and said, I have this amazing idea for a title that cleverly utilizes a number of our hottest properties in a really cleverly titled way that plays well into the Infinity Warps upcoming crossover. You guys definitely want to get in on this. And they were like, we love it. And he was like, and then here's my plans for after. And they're like, after? After? Silly bald boy. After? And he was like, yeah. And they were like, okay. Yeah, let's see how that goes. And, you know, this is 2019. This is the beginning side. Like we live in a world right now where Marvel is so quickly oscillating between issue 100 and issue six of everything. The idea that this book in 2018 and 2019 was ever going to get a fair shot with two intellectual properties in the name as Guardians and of the Galaxy. mm -mm, Not going to happen. This to me reads like a writer came in and said, I have this beautiful idea for a story. What do you guys think? And as 
at the time, Marvel was like, yeah. And then the way all of these things go eventually, perhaps the honesty of the notion was eroded by a fickle publishing schedule and a bitchy media. I can certainly see that. I think at the end of the day, I clearly have no idea what exactly happened. But what it does feel like is this was never really going to go all the way. I could absolutely see the writer being totally enthusiastic about it. I Like I said, if you showed me an interview where it turned out that this was just all contractual stuff, I could believe that too. But regardless of what the reason was, it just didn't feel like for whatever great ideas there were and good writing and fun story, it never felt like this was somebody planting a flag and saying, welcome to the team that you are going to see for the next 20 years. That I very much agree with. It's one of the things that I point out a lot about the Runaways that makes the Runaways different from the classic Young Avengers. For me, when I think about the Runaways, it's just too sweet to last, period. Any moment that's good breaks your heart. And it's because there's so few of them. I very much recognize that my, you know, online persona owes a lot to the fact that I love my name. I love my name. And I think it's so cool that there's a Marvel Universe hero that I identified with growing up, who was actually growing up at the same time as me, age-wise. Like, we were roughly the same age. You know, I really resonated with Nico. And all of the best moments of The Runaways are tainted with a sadness that you know it's never going to taste that good again. It's never going to be that time at that party in the backyard where everybody was laughing. And even, like, those of you who had trouble with each other, it all sort of melted away for that one night. And the best moments of The Runaways are cursed with that. Whereas I think the original Alan Heinberg run of Young Avengers is a little bit always telling you how this is the best fucking moment. We're in the best moment. Even when it's a battle, it's the best moment. And like, I don't know why it's a little Julia Sugarbaker, but it is. And that is part of my conflict with this book. I wanted this to be a, oh my God, it's a runaways where every moment of honest freedom of emotional pain and space is perfect. And Mika's We Are Golden starts playing and all of a sudden I feel like I can do anything and that's not what I get. I get a pretty fast introduction even. Like, by the time we have Annabelle Riggs, Kimora, Angela, the Destroyer, you know, we get that wonderful transformation into Brunhilde Valkyrie because this is sort of pre-parallel Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie, Runa being created at Marvel. We get Thunderstrike, we get Throg, then we get the Nividalir, uh, the, the Nevertheless, the the NVIDIA video card. I can't say it. Dwarves. And I don't know. By the time it gets moving, it's just... Oh, Scourge is here too. I hate him. By the time it gets moving, it's just such a plot book. And if it weren't for the fact that Thunderstrike is fuckably hot, I have trouble. I mean, I don't really have trouble. Like, I like this team. I don't understand why it's there, but it entirely works for me. I had no connection to the history uh, with Annabelle Riggs and Brynhilda and the fact that they had a semi-romantic relationship and then Annabelle died and became, she's sharing the same body space with Brynhilda, so only one of them can be present in reality at a time, and it essentially functions as Annabelle 
transforms into Brunhilde when we need her in a battle, when there's a fight situation. It's a weird thing in the fact that there's like a legit plot reason that came before that th- that is happening. It was pretty cool to me. I took like two seconds to look it up, but then, you know, it just situates this team in like things that are happening. You know, Scourge, I don't really care about, but because of the Thor movies, I recognize the character and they can play off that and make him kind of funny. Angela, this was like, okay, this is my moment to really get into her. And then Thunderstrike, that's why I'm reading this. So, you know, now is his chance to shine in 616. And now is my chance to see a writer that I have loved on certain things and maybe not resonated with on others. But like, this is a legit writer. Spider-Girl's, Spider-Girl, you know, her first, that start of Edge of Spider-Verse where Peter Parker dies, that is a slam dunk vision of Spider-Girl's life in that moment. But I have some real conflict with the person that wrote that. And from there, it's just like the novelty of the fact that somebody besides Tom DeFalco is writing her wears off fast and the fact that they're writing for her is not really stellar is a, is painful. In this case, Thunderstrike finally gets his time with a great writer and I actually think for the most part it all holds up pretty well. Like for me, everything about this is like, yeah, I am on board and ready to have fun. I just continue to see all the places where it's like, okay, but like, is this even the only reason I know this is getting 10 issues is because I literally see them on Marvel Unlimited, but even reading the first one in the middle of it, I'm thinking like, I'll be surprised if this gets three. But you can see from the initial launch that they really wanted you to think some shit was about to go down. Whether it's the fact that you have legendary Marvel megastar Dale Kwan or, you know, Humberto Ramos, Cliff Chang, Scotty Young doing covers. That's some names. And like, you know, there really are number ones that nobody gives a shit about. Like, I think about how disrespected the most recent Jane Foster miniseries was. It finally concluded just now. And I swear, once Thor stopped being the news cycle for the film and once they stopped trying to show off the incredible TRT cycle that Chris Hemsworth had done, I feel like they just forgot that that fucking book existed and you were finally brave enough to have a woman writing a book called Thor and you just forgot? And in that regard, I kind of hate that Loki is in this. Kid Loki is not a stand-in for, like, your puckish mischief DM. And, like, uh, that was probably the one actual problem I had with this whole book. Everything else, I actually, all of my problems with this book are I don't care about Nebula outside of, you know, Karen Gillan. And that's not Kieran Gillan, that's Karen Gillan. That's the only place I really like Nebula, really. And so, mm, whatever, she's the bad guy. But that's plot related. What the, f- this was not, I agree, there are bad and good versions of people. I thought Angela here was terrific. This was not very good Kid Loki for me. This was just generic impish puck boy. So the only reason why two things work for Loki, and it doesn't have to do with good right. You are you are right that the actual on-page, you know, dialogue and interaction with Loki, not super solid. Two things. One, you see, if you are a big Young Avengers, uh, Kieran Gillen's Young Avengers, Jamie McKelvey and Kieran Gillen's Young Avengers person, you see the Kid Loki that you see in that book finally get the conclusion to his storyline, which is pretty special. And on top of that, you get to see a version of Loki have a really interesting relationship with his sister. And if that has to be canon, if we're just definitely going to do that, and if the Loki that we're used to just kind of is always going to be a little too on the mischief as villainy side of things, this version feels a little bit like the kid has to get to know his sister and the sister has to give him a break because he's a kid. So you get those moments and 
between those two things that are kind of really important to a moving and kind of sweet and caring conception of Loki as a character, I enjoyed it for that reason. Now, a lot of that is just because the setup works and not because in the moments where those things happen, they're just stellarly written on the page. They're fine. The moments in and of themselves acquit themselves fine on the page. Conceptually, the fact that they're happening to me was a bit of a treat. It's interesting because I have a hard time not agreeing with your assessment of Kid Loki getting his story completed. I think this is one of the first cases where you and I are really seeing a difference of functional opinion. There were places we had some, you know, never a disagreement, but not same thought processes. But here, I think this is the first time where I think we're looking at this from very different perspectives on how to design a universe. For me, once Kieran Gillen left Young Avengers and said, I'm leaving that open, whatever happens here does not close that story out for me. I can't see this as any part of that story because for me, the complete Kieran Gillen Kid Loki is in Journey into Mystery. And the setup for Young Avengers always felt kind of like, oh, but there's more adventures down the line. Like they said to him, leave it so that somebody else can play with the nice toy. And I find this so disconnected from that, that it feels a little too much like someone coming in and writing the last few chapters of someone else's novel. So even though the Kid Loki Angela stuff really is some of the strongest interactions throughout the book, and I really hear that, and I'm really here for it, I found a lot of the grandeur, you know, and that's even part of it. The the Kid Loki grandeur, that we're tying it into the bigness of Kid Loki, and the bigness of Angela, and the bigness of Infinity War, and the bigness of War of the Realms. And then the first issue had like seven splash pages. There's a grandeur that distracts from the intimacy of what this book should be. So there's a couple things here. One, it's interesting because we're not really disagreeing. We are two people, one of whom does not want pizza if it's bad pizza like pizza is only really good if it's good pizza you and me who's like I don't know any pizza is good pizza to me like I can tell that some of them are good and some of them are bad but if it's pizza I'll take it like in this case your expectations for what would be better are not anything that I disagree with I just in and I'm I tend to be a lot more cynical and a lot more like it like if this were an X-Men thing I would be like if it's not gonna be good don't give it to me but whereas I'm like if it's X-Men and it's bad that's fine (laughs) right But like, to me, Kid Loki is not as big a character, I think, as you see him as, because for me, it really is just my my only experience pretty much is McKelvey and Gillen's Young Avengers. I know he's in more. I just haven't gotten to it yet. And even if I got to it, it would take me a while to internalize all of it. So this is kind of my other significant Kid Loki moment. And I can see that it is not mind blowing. And I also I know that there are other thing where he, things where he's in and they are probably better. I also think you're completely right that it's disconnected. For me, that winds up being a bit of a novelty insofar as it's like uh, that thing in a lot of stories where you're like, that's what that character was doing over there at the same time that he would randomly pop up here. So I'm enjoying the novelty of it, but I can definitely understand that none of it is like stellar quality. I just, I like I said, I'm so along for the ride on all this stuff. I have a lot of things to say about Thunderstrike and sort of the symbology of the way we've been talking about characters as a a force of concept, right? But I do want to say that one thing this book got more right than I could have ever hoped was I love Throg. I really hate 
eight most Throg references. It's really interesting because I feel like it, not like as somebody who yeah, was there with Canon first. Nothing, you know, where you should use a dumb sliced alone accent. But like as someone who's read every appearance of Mike Murdoch, not because I'm some super fan, but because they're available on Marvel Unlimited. I can say that when people are like, oh, yeah, the the dumb uh, twin brother thing. And I'm like the psychologically manipulative alter ego that he creates and nearly loses himself in as a way to create emotional distance between himself and those he loves to protect Daredevil so that Daredevil can continue to protect the city. The concept of anti-self that he develops in an effort to rebuff people's affection. Yeah, it's a laughing matter. The guy becomes completely dissociative and the only way he can come out of it is to pretend that he's not blind and to psychologically abuse the people he loves. But it's funny. So like sometimes when people take something from a comic that is actually this dynamic crazy thing and they hyper simplify it to something so juvenile I get furious because not you're fucking with my canon because you're belittling a medium and it makes you sound small not the medium Throg is easily a Peter Porkerable idea but no here first of all this is the best Scourge has ever been 85 points I'm really confused but he's like a Fandral level character here like legitimately like great Asgard heroes like Balder before all the JMS stuff ruined him I agree and his stuff with Thunderstrike is a really important part of what makes this book good for Thunderstrike the fact that somebody finally had the closest like let me give you a father figure moment that is well written the Thunderstrike series that we got was just kind of you know there were some cool ideas around like his stepdad obviously being a good guy which is such a rare thing to have that like it was kind of cool that you know this was somebody who obviously really respected his birth father and wanted to live up to his father's legacy and to have his stepson see his father as a good person but to really have this moment where this kind of slapsticky comedy character who is a brother in arms can be a little bit paternal a little bit big brother and say like I knew your father and he would be proud of you sometimes that is to write a good simple moment like that on page can do a lot more for a character and a moment in a book than really trying to structure a big thing where you do some meta commentary on Fox. Yeah, I have a weird romance with bad men being good dads. And I think it's because I am so sick of good men being bad dads. Mm-hmm. You know, I am really at my limit because I'm not here to argue whether or not Tony Stark, Bruce Wayne, blah, blah, blah. I'm not here to argue if they're good men or not. They save the world. They're heroes. They put money into impoverished communities. They're good men. There's some cosmic tipping scales that, you know, Kieran Gillen is having the best fucking time of his life talking about right now. But, you know, Batman is a good man who's pretty frequently a bad fucking father. And I'm pretty tired of that, which is one of the only reasons that even though the ending of Love and Thunder really confuses me still, I'm okay with it because Thor would make a great dad and fuck you if you don't think he would, Uh, especially post Jane, especially after a woman told him that his inability to see past his own gender can find his ability to be a hero to something less than the world and he both deserved to share in not a woman bettered him but a woman informed him of a perspective he didn't have as a man come on that's incredible 
but Scourge is a bad man. It's even in that second issue explanation that he gives. Thunderstrike, unfortunately, bratty jock subs are my thing, and I would trade anything to like a mousy librarian gymnast, but that's just never gonna happen. And man, if I be a mousy librarian gymnast, I'll, I'll find a way to love him, you know? So when Thunderstrike being all kinds of gross sex is disgusting to Annabelle and Scourge in issue two says to him, boy, I'm going to offer you a piece of advice. It's something I heard from many a lost soul in hell. Don't be that guy. You know, Scourge isn't saying, it's not that scene from Unreal, this is not what men do. It's not Chet literally transforming my understanding of Craig Bierko as an actor. It's a real shitty dude being like, hey, I'm the badass guardian. Why don't you keep your nose clean and we'll go from here. And like, there's something about it that is one of the best Scourge moments I've ever seen. And it, to the heart of our totemic symbology, this is Thunderstrike. Thunderstrike is a beta boy who is always looking for an alpha. And the only reason he rose to the ranks of pseudo-alpha in the pages of A Next is because he was compelled to do so by having J2, who immediately seemed to connect with him in a looking up to him kind of way. We both felt that it was a very big bro, little bro situation. Thunder strike the big guy even though he had just gained his abilities as well so i feel so fascinated by how thunderstrike he didn't have a little guy here he doesn't have a little guy we saw him start to change in home front as there were kind of sort of little guys to look after he came in a piece of shit but by the end he'd soften i think the issue here is he is essentially a beta type personality who looks to an alpha type personality for guidance and he doesn't have that in a next so he becomes it but here he has it it's just from a shitty guy so he doesn't need to step up and meet an existing bar yeah i think that makes a lot of sense i think that he does learn in that way and he's on his path to becoming like a good superhero and to becoming you know a man more of a man and those are great things but it is a little different than this moment of like i I'm an art school kid who gets jacked in this kind of weird way and could turn into a bit of an asshole, like almost incel. But, you know, I meet this other kid who's similar to having the same experience to me and I'm a little bit older, but we're both going through this thing. So I just kind of, yeah, I fall into the the big, big brother role by default. And the two of them kind of grow up together as both J2 and Thunderstrike, but also as Zane and Kevin. And, you know, they become friends and that's all great. Here, he's lacking in his father he does have a father figure but it's clear that there's some conflict there he's lacking in a lot of guidance and he starts off as kind of a jerk and he's consistently learning from somebody who is trying to make him less of a jerk and he continues to learn and that's great but it does sometimes like if you have to keep making the character a jerk so that he can learn how not to be one it is a little difficult to be like yeah I'm rooting for this jerk even though it kind of puts Scourge in a cool place and you know I really do like Scourge saying don't be that guy like it really it's kind of equivalent to how people are like it's fine that mr sinister is a villain but he can't be a nazi like and not not because like that's not it's not plausible for villains to be nazis more just because like we as readers we can't laugh at sinister being a dandy if he's also a nazi like we just can't see that kind of silly fun stuff and it's similar here insofar as like scourge can be a villain and he can be somebody who is kind of like i'm bad but he can't 
be somebody who disrespects women because then like when we see him being bad in ways that are fun and funny and harmless from the perspective of reading comics if he's also like you know a misogynist the whole thing kind of falls apart so he can go to thunderstrike and essentially say like you can do you know you can rob shit if you want you can do little petty crimes and be a dick but don't be a misogynist that sucks and the fact that he has to say that to thunderstrike makes thunderstrike a little difficult to follow but we do really see him over the course of these 10 issues improve it also confuses me because of grunny yeah he had like a valkyrie warrior woman that right. was like his teacher that he respected that he trusted and there's just a lot of thunderstrike seems to be used here in concept more than he's used here in actuality but one more time i just really want to say that part of that for me is you know we're dealing with nebula who was just big in the movies at this point we're dealing with gamora we're dealing with zombie thor which marvel zombies you know let's throw out the schedule my zombies like i don't know what else to say it feels many times like these books become victims of the bigness that makes them possible and i appreciate that like i would not give up this jill thompson throg page for anything mm. you know jill thompson i have a jill thompson Lil morpheus sandman baby original commission hanging in my office and it's in my tori amos shrine and i really remember that conversation because number one like jill thompson was incredible and like literally engaged me to talk with her while she created the art for me which was like really a really kind of beautiful way to infuse the art with our discussion so like as she was making this for me we were talking and our discussion shaped the way her hand moved and like it was a really empowering experience to be part of she talked with me about how she and Alex Ross would discuss anime and manga together oh my god and I shared with her an experience that I'd had with her husband who's like a personal hero of mine and she was like that he talked to you about that work says that he enjoyed that conversation and like I just that was such an intimate thing to let me anyway Jill Thompson is a fucking master and we should all take 45 minutes a day to be grateful when she puts up one of her Instagram fashion pics okay thank you but I wouldn't give up a moment of that sort of magic or Mike Del Mundo pinch hitting from his time in Thor with for the scourge page but like man by issue four and five I'm no longer even following the story I'm reading it for the character beats you know the Nova Corps is there and it's just fucking Scott adds it and Hornberger and I uh, man that takes me out every time you know I think you're right it's not especially compelling it's really believable like the fact that all this stuff is happening it's like oh yeah I mean like of course Angela is worried about Asgardian god thing and of course like because it's space based like Nebula feels believable to be in there the Nova Corps feels it's believable that they're there the fact that they arrest everybody it's all fine it just is it is a little bit confusing it's just really unclear what we're driving towards. It also feels like, I mean, and I've looked over the rest of this crossover to have a better understanding, but as I was reading it, I was like, it feels like a lot of big shit is happening in this book for a book not written by the guy who did the actual crossover. So like, this feels like a big deal for a lot of these characters and part of, I think, what was done so well in this particular story was that there was a believable effort to move these characters in 
into kind of the center ring in a way that made sense. Number one, speaking of center ring, uh, you know, issue five does have the Stan Lee Memorial. Sort of impossible to believe it's been four years since every book said Stan Lee, but it just unfortunately feels like there is someone whose name goes on the banner of the books every year and it's crazy. But, you know, back to the story at hand. By the time issue five comes around, I felt like we were starting to border on standing around and having conversations in a we would kind of poke holes at that kind of way. And I'll be honest, big Thor reader around this time recently reread it. I have no fucking clue how Thor is in this at this time. No fucking clue. Yeah, I was curious about that. I mean, like, and I don't really care about the Infinity Warp stuff or Gamora as Requiem. I mean, honestly, the crowning moment of this for me is in issue four where Frog grabs his hammer again and beats the shit out of Gladiator. Sorry. It's just funny and fun and I love Throg. I'm such like a B-list Thor's person. Like, Throg and Beta Ray Bill, I, please God, let me write the buddy comedy book about Throg and Beta Ray Bill having to do all the shit that Thor doesn't feel like doing. As long as it can be like, you know, Exit to Eden with Beta Ray Bill playing that 1994 circa Rosie O'Donnell. Yes, 100%. Including the like bondage gear at one point. Yeah, with the yes. changing weight from scene to scene because the reshoots were six months later and she was no longer on the film's diet. Precisely. So she- she even talks about it in the special where she does the I want a hot fucking dog thing for <laughs> Melanie Griffith. You know what I mean? Yep. Uh, in that comedy special, she's like, yeah, I gain and lose 40 pounds in the same shot. In the doorway, skinny. Through the doorway, monster. And so <laughs> that rings in my head forever. That and Koosh Balls. That's Beta Ray Bill. Yeah, um, Beta Ray Bill is definitely the Rosie O'Donnell of Asgard. Quote him on that, people. That's just like a really fun, stupid in the best possible way moment. And from there, we have to go on having more issues of this book. And you're right. Like it does end up with a lot of people standing around be like, what are we going to do next? Like big reveal of other people standing around and like Thor brought to his knees. I fully believe you that it is not makes no sense that Thor is here and it's very impossible to understand how he's being there. It feels similar that Gamora shows up at one point and it really feels like she shows up just to be like, this has my infinity warp seal of approval. Like this is part of the problem. And then she just disappears to go actually be part of the event that is the big deal. And they're just stuck there fighting about zombie stuff. I believe the term I would want to use for it is she just fucks right off. She does, in fact, fuck right off. It really is just the silliest cameo strictly for the purpose of being like, I swear this is relevant. Like the the main villain showed up, so it's got to be relevant, right? Which also raises a lot of questions about the way we under perceive the I'm trying to find the right because I want to say this with respect. But when you have 10 superstars and you only have six superstar books, someone is going to get dicked but good. And this book really feels like this book was the dicked. I, you know all said and done this first five issues I'll give it a B I'll give it a happy B kind of sort of because the art is unreal for a book that got no love and real rough sales this had some of the finest art out of a Marvel book in its time 
it felt alive. The colors were really scrumtralescent. And that's what always, always call him Tugboat. And that's why they wound up being sort of pervasive throughout early Krakoa. And I don't know. I liked the book. I didn't like the plot. I loved the writing. I didn't love all of the pacing, but all said and done, definitely a B. And much of that is based on Cullen Bunn's love for character and this art team's love for their job. I'm very surprised that you went as high as a B. B is my grade too. I feel like I had a little bit more fun with this, but that that kind of actually does get to my point. Like to both of us, this is a B. I enjoyed the B, I think a little more than you did just because of our different like backgrounds and perspectives and what we kind of wanted to get out of this. I completely agree with everything you're saying. The art really is a champ here. The writing shows a lot of love. Um, The fact that we are in Infinity War, Infinity Warps, not not helping anybody, but like Infino Doodad. (laughs) What? Infino Doodad. That yes, that that classic crossover. Colin Bunn writing Thunderstrike is a real boon for him. Believably, anybody could pick up this character and reference these adventures and kind of give off the vibe that this is a character that matters, maybe even a little more than he really does. But you know, Colin Bunn wrote him. Colin Bunn decided like this is somebody who is supposed to be out in space fighting gods. That that's important. And to go from a weird art studio knock off of his dad that nobody cares about in 1998 to this in 2019 that's a big move for a character And I feel like the second arc of Asgardians of the Galaxy being two shorter arcs that are both supposedly part of the War of the Realms crossover, but aren't really, but both connect to the first arc in that they connect to the source of the book. Fuck, this book deserves so much better than the Infino doodad that it got dumped around as. Even if you told me this was Cullen Bunn's, you know, complete vision since day one, I would struggle a little to feel confident in that. Yep, I completely agree. Um, And this issue six, this first arc is where we're at our best because it really does feel like it doesn't have to be part of anything bigger and it is just kind of an adventure for Angela to go find her girlfriend, which fuck if I don't love that, but because it is also kind of marketing itself as part of a larger Marvel context, it always feels like what you're saying is don't worry, we would never let this book exist unless there was a reason that went beyond the book itself. And to me, that just kind of always says like, we know it's bad. We know this shouldn't be happening. It's happening because it serves a function. And A, it makes me like very constantly looking for the holes and constantly wondering why everybody who was producing it thought it was bad. But then also it just like, it says to me that people don't have confidence in it. And that's a bummer. It might be in part that sort of, like I said, the idea that too many superstars, but it feels like this book really did get the shaft on being the book that did the queer thing. Because you're right. I didn't give it enough credit, especially in my notes, that this is the queer love story that we really wanted. You know, I you made a joke that if we're stuck with Angela being Thor and Loki's sister, and I want to be like, listen, I appreciate what you're saying, but I do believe she is the coolest member of that family. Oh, 100%. And like, I'm I'm not here to, you know, shit on any fanboy, not you by any means, but like, I... 
treasure those sorts of changes to, you know, these things that people think are so sacrosanct. But you know what? Thor and Loki weren't bros who hung out with their dad and fought a bunch of humans called the Avengers for the first like 3,000 fucking years that Thor was a story. And we went ahead and we changed that. I think it's cool that she is their sister. Like what would have been really cool is if she were Gaia's child and were Thor's sister by whatever blood there is. And then, you know, Odin had adopted her in the same way that he adopted Loki. And then whatever happened that everybody just kind of forgot about it or didn't realize, whatever. It's just the idea that she is Odin's daughter and is actually Aelrif or whatever the fuck her name is. And meanwhile, she's the Spawn character. It's just a little fucky. But the idea that Angela is their sister is really cool in and of itself. It just deserves an origin that is as cool as the pinnacle of that idea could be. For me, I think the idea works at pinnacle as is because it does go to the heart of these characters for me. Like it does fulfill that totem idea. Thor's father, Odin, would find someone he definitely shouldn't fuck and he would fuck her because she's so wrong to fuck and that it would be this woman who ultimately would go on to break the world tree. Yeah, that's the kind of mistake Odin loves to make. Here's the real bummer is I can absolutely now see it based on Avengers 1 million BC. Yeah, and that's that's the long game that we've been playing with Angela, you know, remembering that while Bendis was the first person to guide her through the Marvel Universe, it very quickly turned over to Jason Aaron when she left Guardians of the Galaxy to become an Asgardian, you know, round full circle back to Asgardians of the Galaxy. This two-parter for me is actually even kind of hard to read. It doesn't have the most clear, definitive art. It is a little, uh, a little maybe not art messy, maybe not like bad in any way, but you know, the highlight for me was three specific cameos. Number one, obviously I was thrilled that Sarah was here. That was the kind of thing that we're always looking for. Number two, I was so happy that Rita Ora was in this. And number three, I love this reimagining of Planetary so much. Fucking kid looks like a Muppet baby. And now he is this buffed out, super crazy, badass motherfucker. And I love him. This is so great. You know, he's actually only in his own book until he shows up in Drax and then Deadpool Assassin and then this. Oh, he's in um two issues of XP. But I fucking, yes, yes, yes. The vibe is very much child star who grew up and nobody really loves him for being that child star anymore and he didn't have the career worthy of the child star that he was. But he grew into somebody that was really fucking cool and is now like, it's almost underground knowledge that he's this cool dude. Yeah, you know, it's it kind of ties back to what I was saying earlier actually about people who misunderstand really special important things in comics and it breaks my heart uh no opposite planetary stupid he's literally a saturday morning dumb cartoon character on purpose and i don't say stupid disparagingly some art is allowed to be dumb on purpose he is meant to be a cute little kid comic and somebody said what if we sex him up a little bit that's funny it's silly it's light he's with the ravagers we're dealing with ego the living planet who cares like 
like this is the kind of place we got yondu this is the kind of place that's fun and i think you know if you're gonna have a silly story vaguely sandwich it between the crossovers though this technically counts as part of the crossover somehow yeah a thousand percent this worked for me and you know i love that we don't go all the way into like barrier gaze or gaze only get tragedy but sarah does say like i i love you but no i'm not coming with you like gays also aren't just going to get their relationships always work out because gays deserve only the best things like gays shouldn't always have their lovers die and they shouldn't always get married and go off into the sunset together they should have people they love and sometimes it doesn't work out just because the fucking timing is bad and we all gotta work like that is a very we deserve those stories too i love that they went after her i love that we got to see them kiss i love that we got to see them both with their teams of weird both obscure and stupid characters and then there's ego the living planet and fucking alter ego the world's angriest moon who i'm fucking obsessed with yeah you know that was one of those things that i was like are you telling me there is a smaller angrier ego obsessed obsessed how could you not be and that and that final splash page yeah it's so fucking funny in all the best ways yeah all super good i wish that it could have been more of this without any tags of any other crossover or anything because when this wraps up they really are saying now we're in war of the realms and it's just a bummer that this book kind of couldn't live on its own a little bit and the thing that made this two-parter so interesting to the plot is just kid loki's gone what that's nuts. Like, that's nuts. What are you doing? I understand that the book ultimately, like, you know, there's this thing where when two writers both have the same character, and one of them is a book called As Guardians of the Galaxy, and the other one is a book called Thor, who do you think gets Loki? I'm going to give you a hint. Now, he was off in his own book with Journey into Mystery, War of the Realms, five issues, super fun. It's in the omnibus. Definitely check it out. But, you know, King Loki and King Thor in the Jason Aaron epic conclusion was just around the bend and there was definitely a sense of trying to close out the Jason Aaron era of Thor in a lot of ways, although we're still seeing remnants of it running through the pages of the Valkyrie books and Avengers, so you know that whole era is at an end soon because Marvel doesn't let people Tom DeFalco into the sunset anymore. They find an ice flow, they give you an emeritus title... And then they write you off, right? So we know that Jason Aaron's time isn't over as a powerhouse at Marvel, but his era of Thor is going to come to a close and you can feel it. It's a palpable taste in your mouth that a book is about to dramatically change in a significant way. And I really think that that's what you get at the end of issue seven. I think it's like, oh, okay, the book that I've been reading is over. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I would give this arc a B, you know, for everything that I didn't love, I probably wouldn't have minded reading this monthly. Journey into Mystery is something I don't think unless you force yourself to read it one per month, like the Kieran, because you said that you haven't experienced Kieran's gym. That's a book that like, I really think it benefited from being digested and going back and reading it again and then reading the five issues you had and then reading 10 issues you had. Like there was a digestibility to that book that time decompression favored, right? This book does not benefit from that. If I don't have the last 
first issue right in front of me. I'm not sure what I'm reading. And these two issues, though, probably the only two of the 10 where I wouldn't have felt that. Yeah, I'm giving these two issues an A minus. I really do think everything about these work for me. The only thing maybe was the art. And I don't even want to say that it was not fantastic. Matteo Buffoni's style is a little abstract for what this particular two-parter I think needed. It's still really gorgeous and I think some great depictions of the characters. It's just a little bit um, color outside the lines in a way that I often love but for this I think we needed just a little closer to house style. Everything else about it works for me. You know again the queer storyline super important. Uh, Ego and alter ego amazing. The two teams fantastic. Just really everything was on point and it did kind of show proof of concept that this story could work if it was given its own room and its own lane to run in but these also have war of the realms on the cover even though i really don't think they have anything to do with war of the realms and at the end of this arc it announces like we actually are doing war of the realms for the rest of this series but i think you're absolutely right if i don't see that this is 10 issues long i am at issues five six and seven just kind of like i I think is this i think this is it i don't think they're getting another one there's no way they're getting another one right no Oh, okay. I, there is another. Yeah, okay. Uh, which is something that happens to me a lot in currently running titles where I'm like, there's no way there's another one, right? I know there's 10 here, so I know we are getting that much. But at issue 10, I feel the same way that I did as, at issue 7. As we roll into issue 8, which so proudly says on it that it's the return of Matteo Loli, which is actually made almost, I don't want to say insulting or bittersweet, because I feel like insulting is like maybe too extreme a thing to say. But I really want to point out that he's only on this issue. And then the final two are Paolo Villanelli and Luca Maresca. So like the cover boasting the return of the original artist is so quickly diminished by the artist ultimately leaving again. Now, while this cover is not by Matteo Loli, Gerardo Sandoval and Antonio Thabella's cover here does some stuff that really almost, I don't want to say challenges me, but they really captured the excellence of Angela in her dynamic out of this world, otherworldliness. That's something that really makes her not just interesting to look at, but it gives her a sexual quality that she's kind of like an art that doesn't match the rest of the book. And I love that. But then everyone else is dramatically off model in a way that throws me off. Is Scourge Rip Torn? Yeah, first of all, <laughs> fuck, Rip Torn wishes. <laughs> Scourge looks like every guy that messages me on Scruff and is like, yeah, dominant boy, huh? And then next to him is Anime Queen Valkyrie? And that I'm not convinced is Thunderstrike. No, no. I think that's Cannonball circa 2004. So it's not a bad cover. It's not bad art, but poor Throg is just tripping balls. I legitimately think Throg (laughs) looks like photoshopped in after the fact, like they forgot (laughs) to include him. And it's just not my favorite cover by artists that I genuinely think are fantastic. You know, I also really like the way that Annabelle has the Nova Pilot helmet now. That's just a really nice touch that kind of elevates her character a little bit, but that this whole arc is exclusively about advancing the Annabelle story, which really feels like another book's story while trying to do War of the Realms. Guys, you only had 66 pages, and I feel 
appear that this last arc really represents doing a disservice to both stories in favor of facilitating them both. When truly, I would have rather this either not been a part of War of the Realms or this not been the chance to shoehorn in Valkyrie's story. I understand it was very possibly or very probably the last chance Cullen Bunn was going to have before an editorial rollover with the Thor characters and the mythos and he wouldn't get a chance to get his hands back on his Valkyrie knowing that Runa was coming and knowing that Jane was coming but man this felt like such a rush job yeah Ren who seems like a really cool character and again more queer love happy to see it but it just feels yeah it feels like somebody some other book story that I don't know if it's here because Colin Bunn is really enthusiastic about Annabelle and Ren if it's some other editorial mandate and then if this is editorially mandated who wanted this to be part of War of the Realms there's a lot happening none of which makes clear to me that it is the heart and soul of this book there were things that I definitely thought by issue 9 picked up a bit issue 8 really felt like one big fight sequence where characters just got sort of written out between slashes bye but then in issue 9 okay, getting the appear okay I'm not a Malachite fan first off no version of him not the comic version not the movie version just not my character not my thing I'm not really like a an evil blue dark elf guy not my thing right but seeing him here sort of lent credence to this being the crossover title seeing Clea was cool seeing the team journey to save Annabelle was cool it just felt like because 8 was a big fight sequence issue maybe hopefully to drum up sales issue 9 felt like get through all the plot before it's too late which really again didn't service the book I do want to say that I am very impressed with how hot Paolo Villanelli makes Thunderstrike oh without question I actually do think Thunderstrike physically visually has a really nice look throughout this series sometimes he has a little bit like wet jock look yeah that i don't love the weight belt is a weird choice like it really does feel like he put together a costume based on what items were around the house and because you know that that's not how it was created it just feels weird and it i wish somebody had up their game a little like it does really feel like he is wearing a squat belt because he felt he needed to be belted man in a couple of years when he realizes the lack of supports he has built just learn to brace bro it's not hard do breathing exercises and maybe if the mace is too heavy which hold on that's something i really want to talk about the mace looks interesting in this series doesn't really look like the mace or any version of it we've ever held but okay okay i love that iliana's sword iliana resputant magic that her sword transforms with like who she she is okay yeah you know what uh sweaty jock bro his sword could transform too that's completely fine you know and i kind of like that about it it has a really interesting vibe for it the main thing that i think coming to the end of this arc and like i'm not trying to shortchange this last arc in any way but i didn't really have a lot of plot from it it just really felt like a lot of stories got paid off here the heaven stuff felt really fucking shoehorned in the main thing here for me was they just sort of forgot to remind us that Thunderstrike has anything to do with Asgard, like ever, in the whole series. They did at the very beginning, and it's that Scourge moment of being like, I knew your dad, but that was it. It definitely is a title that I feel suffers for being part of a crossover. These three issues don't really do anything for the really, again, lovely quality of the first seven. I feel really confident that the thing that this miniseries was trying to do was trying to give attention to a lot of characters that hadn't gotten that kind 
kind of attention in some time. And this is important because one of the things that we get trapped in, like one of the cycles that we get stuck in, is only certain writers pay attention to certain characters. And something I'm going to give Cullen Bunn for sure is he's always seemed like a team player when it comes to these books with Angela, with Kid Loki, you know, Angela, definitely a Kieran Gillen character, but also a Marguerite Bennett character. Kid Loki, primarily a Kieran Gillen character, but Loki is a many faceted character who many people have all collectively worked on. I don't think Kieran Gillen ever wrote a page of Thunderstrike a day in his life. So that's probably a deep cut that Cullen Bunn has affection for, which is really nice. There's a few too many good characters and not enough room for any of them. So I do think we are just a little too pressed for time to enjoy the quality of this title the way we should. I also just want to say here so that I've said it here so that later I can refer to it in a Punisher episode. This is exactly the shitty use of the Punisher in this final issue that I understand why people find the Punisher problematic. He shows up and is totally a hero and they put him in the context with a young kid and he gives the fucking kid a gun and then they just shoot a bunch of like actual in quotes bad guys. I get why people hate that depiction of Frank and are dubious of him as a character anywhere and so would be dubious of Aaron's Punisher run. Aaron's Punisher is so not this dude and this dude is the worst and I really was bummed to see him there. Just want to have said that but everything else that you say I completely agree with. I think this book quitted itself very well for what it was and what it did. I just think that conceptually right from the get-go it was held back by a lot of larger framework stuff and whether or not that was accidental or intentional at this point doesn't really matter. Like I said I'm happy it exists so that for a character like Thunderstrike it can be interesting background to mine should he show up again later. Now I decided to do a little more digging because you just never know what I'm gonna find when I put in that little bit of legwork and wouldn't you know there is something sort kind of left to discuss but only in a really out there kind of way. In the same era that this title was coming out, Marvel released a title called Thor the Worthy number one, and it featured four Thor characters, Thor himself, Thor herself, Beta Ray Bill, and Thunderstrike. And what was so interesting about this one shot that I could not get over was the credits page description of the story. Now, Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends are credited as script, plot, and pencils, inks by Keith Williams, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, VCs Clayton Cowles. We're not even going to touch the story. That's not why I'm talking about this. I need to point out that the the story's description is Eric Masterson was born a, I'm sorry, Eric Masterson was a mortal ally of Thor who proved himself worthy of an enchanted weapon of his own and became the hero known as Thunderstrike. He would eventually die in battle and his son Kevin now carries on the Thunderstrike legacy. But while he lived, Eric fought daily to protect Midgar and remain worthy. The story is then literally a classic Thunderstrike story, not a Kevin story. So Tom DeFalco was like, I want to tell an original Thunderstrike story. I don't want to tell the kid one, you know, the one that I'm known for, um, having co-created. Oh, he co-created them both. But like, I don't know. What a weird choice to be like, I'm not going to write the cool one, but mention him for me. And like, I I would like my co-creator, Ron Friends, to do this very early 90s style and just lift this completely out of a context that no longer exists. Yeah, you know, that said, I am going to have to give this War of the Realms arc kind of a little bit more like perhaps a C. It was not visually 
really stunning to me the same way the earlier issues were. The plot got really confused and like seven storylines got finished off in like four pages. And that's just not fair to any of them, including the writer himself. Yep, I agree. I think I would say C as well. I get why War of the Realms would be important to the Guardians of the Galaxy. I just wish we'd found another way to work through all this stuff. And maybe, yeah, like if they had to be part of this crossover, don't do so much other character. I mean, I think we got enough of what we needed for Annabelle just from her getting the Nova core helmet. I don't know that we needed to do a thing solving her body swap situation. But we did it. But we did it. I'm actually really glad that after thinking we were going to cover this story all the way back in episode 17, that's two months ago, we're finally getting to it here at episode 24. It really is sort of a stamp of goodbye to everything that covered the MC2 universe. We still, of course, have Spider-Girl. There was an MC2 nod in Spider-Gwen Gwenverse, Gwen of the Spider-Gwen or whatever the fuck it's called, where they did like like the multiverse, like, you know, kind of like Gwenverse thing, and there's a reference to MC2 in it. So it's not like it's over-over, but at this point, we've really exhausted the, the full well of MC2, and I think that puts us in a great position to really transition our coverage to this new idea, to this totemic symbology or symbolic totems and how they relate to the heart of the character. You know, thinking that Thunderstrike was going to be the last thing that we covered is maybe a little heartbreaking because he never really got to be who he was meant to be, but that's really MC2. And we have a little bit more MC2 to talk about, but, you know, it's not going to be anything through the beginning of our coverage, through episode zero that we did, you know, 23 episodes ago. It's never going to be the same, and maybe that's even why I was putting off covering this, but it sure was a fun ride being J2 with my own Thunderstrike, and I'm excited to start the next phase of this, but it's really bittersweet that this is the very forgettable end for so many reasons. I agree, although, you know, maybe if we just keep kind of treading water and doing this, Thunderstrike's going to get a book sometime, and we can just cover it as it's coming out. He got a brief mention in Strange number three, so stranger things have happened. Uh-huh. It's so great that we're transitioning this show to its new form, this idea of exploring whether or not the symbolic representation of the character in whatever form it is, if it's because the run is different or it's because it's a different version of the character, whatever form we're looking at and seeing does it uphold or support or contrast, you know, that exploration still sources back to our look at Spider-Girl and MC2. And I was digging around for just a little bit more history, just maybe there was some story we hadn't covered or, you know, for a number of years, a couple of those 2099 issues that never got released snuck onto the internet and you could find CBRs or PDFs of them. And I came across a Tom DeFalco segment from Wizard 92 from April of 1999. Now, just to remind everybody, Wizard Magazine, before there was the internet, was like your once a month internet for comics. That was it, right? And Tom DeFalco gave an interview that I find so telling of how the media machine controlled information. And in this Wizard Q&A, the article writer who points it out has a bunch of information about the 
philosophy behind the MC2 line and, you know, that they're trying specifically to not make it so blatantly commercial that DeFalco says that it's all coming back to What If 105, where Spider-Girl debuted, where it's claimed that the issue sold out in one day and Marvel was so stunned by the success, they decided that a Spider-Girl ongoing series should be DeFalco's next project. Okay, now that makes this sound like so many of our quotes specifically must come back to this magazine. Okay. And with that in mind, I want to comment on, as far as I knew, especially going way, way back to when I worked at a comic shop in 2005. So I'm saying, you know, 15 years ago, and I don't think we had any way of reporting same day sale. I don't think that was a thing we had. And we know the lead time on these books and the development time. And you had two or three guys drawing a bunch of books. And I think one of the things that we sometimes forget is is gatekeeping is a magicians are really just gatekeepers of tricks right really that's the whole thing they're keeping from you just how it's done you still think it's cool even if you knew how it's done you just think it's cool for a different reason they want you to think it's cool because it's mysterious and hearing that in 1999 it could be said as the book sold overnight they sold out all the copies on a single day and the next day they came into the offices and they demanded that Tom DeFalco get started on an entire series of books based on the success of this one issue like that they think we're gonna just switch on our 1945 radio announcer voice and buy into this insanity that it really was just some magic whirlwind like Tom DeFalco is Spider-Girl herself being whisked away because Liz Smith told everyone she was going to be eating at Spago that night. Well, it's, it's funny, too, because in this same article, they talk about his contractual obligations to Marvel, and it feels much more like a contractual thing. I don't know. It just, yeah, I mean, like, I don't think we're being too cynical to think that this doesn't quite add up in the way the story sells it as it adds up. There is something, though, that really caught my eye, and the writer of this article, who does a great job, I am not at all questioning G. Kendall's article, Looking Back at Wizard 92, April 1990. Published September 25th, 2016. Man, do I love that there's a preacher image at the top. I will forever be in love with Jesse Custer. He will always be the perfect man. My husband finds it troubling too. And the thing that caught my eye is the second paragraph about the Tom DeFalco stuff says, I'm slightly curious as to why Spider-Girl was initially so popular. Hold. Spider-Girl wasn't initially so popular. One or two issues were initially so popular. After that, she was popular. You know, she was just kind of sort of popular. I didn't know how far I could take it if I could go Schwartz all the way, but I'll stop there. The thing that gets so confusing is the power of the media machine to make us believe things about Spider-Girl. So if Wizard was constantly talking about Spider-Girl and you were constantly being bombarded with ads and there was the Spider-Girl one half special and they were doing annuals and it was three titles and it was MC2 and you read the bullpen bits. So even if you don't read Spider-Girl, you see her stuff promoted every time you open a book was she ever so popular our sales figures 
say absolutely not. Well, and on top of that, some of those sales, this was intended to be a promotion with, I think, Walmart or Ames or Kmart. Kmart. One of, yeah. Yeah. They would give the books away with other things for kids. Like they were producing these no matter what. And I imagine that there's some fudgeability with the sales in terms of like, this is how many were commissioned, even if the deal didn't go through. Like the whole plan for this didn't have anything to do with popularity. So, you know, I think that really is the truth. The MC2 universe has never really been concerned with popularity, has it? No, it, it's it's mm. it's throwing things to a wall. And the article goes on to talk about something that I guess I'd never really thought about. And I should have. I really should have. Because if tomorrow I came in to a recording session with my exes for podcast team and everyone said to me, by the way, Nico, you're not editing this one. You're not producing this one. You're not putting the room together. You're not leading the discussion. You can you can step back and just enjoy the fine work you've created. I would be a little confused and definitely would need a minute to adjust. But we've mentioned that Tom DeFalco was editor-in-chief at Marvel, but we've really never talked about the fact that he was like fucking deposed. Yeah. Like they were like, uh-uh. Yeah, I mean, going from working under Jim Shooter to becoming the editor-in-chief to, was it Harris after him? I believe so, yeah, Bob Harris. Yeah, we get back to the idea of the company man and to Falco being one of the, I don't want to say the last generation, but he lasted a long time as a company. I think really like Casada is probably the last company man. Like, I don't think C.B. Sabolsky. You know, not in any sort of judgmental way, but there no. are a number of editor-in-chiefs who are good for a company by line and when you know kapow comics shock brand is ready to open offices they'll offer them a nice figure in some ways i don't question walking away from a job like this yeah of course not it's tough to be part of a machine that is built around creative work but is not concerned purely with the beauty of creativity that is concerned with as all companies and a capitalist society are making money these two things are often at odds and it's very difficult to keep the balances and it doesn't surprise me at all you know I don't I have no idea what the story is behind DeFalco becoming editor-in-chief and no longer being editor-in-chief there's nothing that I can think of that would make me say like this fucking disaster of a dude I imagine it's a complex story and it was a very difficult job it also is of note that he was editor-in-chief right around the time the company was filing for bankruptcy and while often you can say the guy in charge is responsible for the decisions that led to something like that he inherited a mess and he, I think he was just kind of like wrong place wrong time but then I also can't escape how the era that he most harkens back to in his work is the era when he was editor-in-chief and it seems like everything that came after he was editor-in-chief was really about pulling from where he was the head honcho as a writer and then became editor-in-chief like when he really had carte blanche and he actually kind of mentions that briefly in the interview where he says that he can't answer the question of the current state of 1999 at Marvel because in you know any sort of civil way he tried to answer it, a negative response would be received as he's bitter, but a positive response would come off as quote unquote being full of it, right? Again, big thanks to the CBR article looking back at Wizard 92 April 1999 for all of this amazing information. So I get it, you know, it's, it's tough, but it also made me learn a lot because there's a 
sidebar interview that says a number of Tom DeFalco major moment things. And the top one says, on changing Spider-Man's costume, when we announced it, everyone hated the idea. Because of this, my instructions were, bring the costume in for one issue and get rid of it. I remember arguing, wait a minute, they haven't seen it yet. Let's show them that this is something new and unique and add something to Spider-Man legend instead of it just being a blight. When the costume finally came out and people saw how we were dealing with it, they decided they loved it. And I said, wait, is this implying that Tom DeFalco is the guy who put Spider-Man in the black symbiote? And I was wondering if it was that or if there was some other costume change later I didn't remember. Well, it turns out that Tom DeFalco wrote all but three issues of Amazing Spider-Man 251 to 285. He would jump back in for 365, 375, and ultimately 407 to 439 plus the negative one, several annuals. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. I had not realized just how much and yet how little Tom DeFalco had written. For instance, I never realized that Tom DeFalco only ever wrote three issues called Avengers. He only ever wrote Avengers 179, 180, and annual number 16. And that's like 1979 and 1987. So it's not even like, hey, we're buddies issues. It's not even like, oh man, I'm just continuing it the next month. It could even be the same threads for all I know, but it's a decade later. But that's how little Avengers by title he's ever written. I don't know. I guess it doesn't really surprise me just because it's not something that we've ever seen him be synonymous with. Like, and given his position, he plausibly could have written any title for, you know, a couple of issues and he can pick up any title for any number of issues. But I guess I've never really thought of him as much of an Avengers guy. I only even ever associated him with it because of just how aggressively he interacted with the A-Next crew. You know, he actually went on to write a lot of Spider-Man. He wrote Amazing Scarlet Spider number two, Green Goblin one through 13, which is the Green Goblin series that saw Phil take on the role. Marvel Team Up 99, 107 to 109, 138, 140 to 141. He would also write a bunch of the other Spider-Man titles, like Sensational Spider-Man. He wrote a couple of issues of the point issues, which means like he like dialed back into old stories. It was a weird thing they tried to do for a hot minute. Spectacular Spider-Man, essentially 215 to 255, though there's a couple of other issues in there. Spider-Man one half, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, the tie-in to the animated series number one, a Spider-Man one-shot with Stan Lee about Kingpin, Maximum Clonage Alpha, the Clone Journal, Clone Saga one through six, which was him returning to the character of the Clone Saga and like telling that story. I can't believe they let him go back and do more. Spider-Man, the Mysterio Manifesto, Spider-Man Unlimited one through six. He did a few other issues later on. I mean, he would go on to do Web of Scarlet Spider, Web Spinner's Tales of Spider-Man. This guy wrote a lot of Spider-Man. Which makes sense because then he goes on to write the most Spider-Girl and writes the most Spider-Man within Spider-Girl. And I mean, I get the A-Next, like you would think that he would have written more based on what he does in A-Next. But A-Next really is like, if you have a general idea of who all of the Avengers are, and like you obviously work at Marvel, so you have a better idea than most people, then you're just writing kind of your own spins on them that are this like kid version where nothing has to really matter in terms of connecting it with the originals. And the thing that really surprised me was like you said, you know, oh, obviously, you know, he wasn't that big on Avengers, but I also then wouldn't have thought he was such a big deal on Fantastic Four, but it turns out, let's check out the next 
quote from the interview on killing Mr. Fantastic. Oh, he killed Mr. Fantastic. Right. I forgot. It was never my intention to rape to bring Reed Richards back. I knew how he could come back. And I figured that as soon as I got off the book, the first story would be bringing him back. So I had the escape for somebody, but I never wanted to bring him back. I did it under orders. It was either that or get fired. So I said, okay, I might as well do it myself then. And all right. So I turned my attention over to Fantastic Four on his, you know, complete bibliography. He wrote Fantastic Four 301 and 302, 356 to 416, and then a handful of other issues. During his run, he wrote a two-issue Atlantis Rising miniseries, which is actually really similar to something we saw Chris Claremont did during his time on Fantastic Four, a little bit later in the 90s, doing miniseries that tied in. He also wrote Marvel 2-in-1, which often featured The Thing. He wrote a significant amount of that, issue 40, 75 to 87, and then a string of the issues in the uh, 90s on the title. So yeah, he did a lot of Fantastic Four, it turns out. And it's funny because Fantastic Four is like the, the flip side of things. If you told me he had only written three issues of Fantastic Four, I would believe that too. You know, it's really silly that I guess in some ways I did leave out that he wrote a bunch of the side characters of the Avengers, sort of in that way that he just kind of threw anybody in any title when he was writing over in the MC2 universe. But he wrote a three-issue Hercules miniseries. He wrote a Hulk one-shot, though the Hulk one-shot did come after his time on MC2. He wrote an extensive amount of Thor from 1987 to 1993, including the majority of Thor 383 to 459. That's a pretty significant run. He would also write Thor Core 1 through 4. He wrote all of both volumes of Thunderstrike 1 through 24 and 1 through 5, as well as 17 issues of Solo Avengers featuring Hawkeye, which I think is really funny because I feel like Hawkeye is somebody he doesn't really use much. Well, he created his own Hawkeye, who's the worst. I think that's just the most amazing thing. I, God, you know, for a guy who created so many amazing characters and had so many cool things that he brought to life, there were some things that it felt like he held on to a lot in his work that we never quite got. And I think for me, a lot of that was his solo Avengers and the way it never felt like they were being avuncular or fatherly. They always just felt like they were testing you to be dicks. And it always felt very toxic of these characters. And, you know, that's something that not that we saw much of his Hawkeye, but I definitely would have vibed from his Hawkeye. It's funny because Hawkeye is kind of one of the ones who's better than the rest in terms of like, he he's like, oh yeah, I trained Freebooter and I fully believe in him. Freebooter's fucking garbage. <laughs> complete garbage. And meanwhile, like Scott Lang, great character and Cassie, we know from other things can be a really cool character but she is just so miserable for so much of her MC2 time and Scott's like kind of a dick and like kind of like, that really should be me but I guess I'm old and dying at 45 so I guess it's gotta be you. Like just, it's so funny to me that he is really capable of doing either like you would think, knowing what we know about Hawkeye today, that Hawkeye would be the dude, Clint Barton would be the dude who was bitter that because of age, he really just couldn't physically be in the shape to be a superhero at base human levels. But he's the guy who's like, no, I'm blind and I started a dojo and I like train the shithead and I believe in him completely, even though you clearly can see that he sucks. And meanwhile, Cassie should just be a cool character and Scott should be like, I raised a great daughter and she's brilliant and she should take my mantle. But he's like bitter and miserable and she's bitter and miserable. Tom DeFalco can do it all 
all. There just seems to be no rhyme or reason for why he is doing it from character to character. It's a mood on him that you can really see a bit more in the way he treats his spider characters. You know, looking over that bibliography, seeing how often he came back to the Clone Saga, which means he must have written nearly every appearance of Alistair Mongrain. You know, he really did connect with characters that I often think he was probably like, yeah, people love this character. And like Chesbro, sure. (laughs) Mindworm, pass. So, you know, it's kind of what it is. And speaking of what it is, it does kind of come to mind that when I looked at his bibliography, the guy's written next to no X-Men. And his quote on it from the Wizard magazine is, I never thought much about it. X-Men was just one piece of the pie and I never had a chance to sit back and say, hey, this is great. We're number one. X-Men was a prime candidate for expansion at the time. Those uh, These books were selling great and people wanted more. And the only real notable things I would say that he wrote for X-Men that like really stand out are he wrote one issue of Generation X. And the only reason I'm going to say that that stand out is because he would use sync in that issue of Spider-Man. So oh, yeah. yep. it feels kind of like maybe he connected with those characters and had an affection for them because he worked with Larry Hama as well. So like he had a vibe there. He also wrote, you know, the best source of glue and jello in the Marvel Universe, Firestar 1 through 4. And speaking of sparkly mutants, he wrote Dazzler 1 through 7. So, you know, just some of the most misogynistic stuff. But he ultimately does, it was the 80s and everybody was on a lot of cocaine. But ultimately, he pulls it out with Spider-Girl, now Spider-Woman, being a whole lot less problematic. I guess you see people evolve with age, even if it is not as much as you wish they would. It really doesn't surprise me that he hasn't been on much X-Men and I but you know if we ever got that X people five to six issue mini I would you know believe that he'd written 12 years of it and that he'd written four issues it's just whatever with this dude and it's great like it I think that we really have to keep in mind that our attachment to what a lot of these especially pre-2000s guys wrote is not the same as their attachment to what they wrote and their investment at the time is very different than our investment. But speaking of investment in these guys, I just want to point out that for a dude who wrote like altogether like six or seven issues of Machine Man, Tom DeFalco did create that 2020 universe, which he actually had an opportunity to return to in 2020. Iron Age 2020 number one, Machine Man 2021 and two, as well as Machine Man 15 through 19 from 1981 and Machine Man one through four from 1984. That's a universe that he seems to have spent a lot of time enjoying. So it's sort of cute that he got to go back to it and over time. So even if he didn't spend a whole lot of time on the X-Men, he did have an opportunity to work on at least some properties he really cared about, which, you know, maybe sounds like I'm being facetious, but no, good for him. He put in a lot of time in this universe. He deserves to connect with the parts of it that he wants. And regardless of how you feel about any of it, he has been foundational to a lot of our understanding of certain characters and how we read them. And I honestly don't hate that he doesn't play the kind of favorites that you might think he would, that he doesn't write consistently over time. You know, he doesn't necessarily have the same conception of characters that I do. And if he wants to make his idea of old Hawkeye, the guy who just like sees some dude and is like, you'll be the new Hawkeye, but you'll call yourself Freebooter and welcome to my dojo. Uh, Also, I'm going to train all these other people and they'll seem vaguely menacing but they actually just want to be Avengers meanwhile like the standard core of Avengers are all just bitter assholes like that's that's fine that's funny he he figured out 
how to write it all. And he did it so in a side universe that it doesn't have to have dramatic consequences to the main Marvel universe. And, you know, his main Marvel universe work is a little bit more subtle and a little bit more consistent. But it's also not stuff I fully all the time agree with or would do under my pen if I had the opportunity to do so. Still really good, solid work. And you kind of sound like Tom DeFalco in that because the final question in his interview is about very controversial editor Jim Shooter and the editors even put note Tom DeFalco worked under former Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter as executive editor during the mid-80s and the quote is Shooter and I were a really good team. He was a terrific idea man and a very creative individual and I'm a very practical person. He would envision these great plans and I would figure out how to make them work. I feel Shooter's been unfairly blamed for a lot of things and hasn't been given the credit he deserves on other things. This quote tells me more than almost any 20 other quotes from this man about any topic because with this, it tells me that he's willing to fucking take it on the chin. This is why he doesn't sell out the fact that Marvel didn't give him the support he deserves. This is why he doesn't come for the creators that vaguely disrespect his work kind of sort of. This is the very hallmark of a man who toes the company line, who acts within the professional parameters of what I will refer to as appropriate discussion and man the amount he must swallow based on that quote alone it really kind of makes what spider girl was able to accomplish seem a lot more incredible and let's be very clear when this interview was published while he was still working at marvel nobody wanted to dig into jim shooter's very homophobic demands and rhetoric and it would not have done anybody any good that is something that we got to later that is something that took us a while to get to it do not read that quote or listen to that quote and think like this is the guy who should have stood up and said that guy was an asshole and a homophobe and a racist it just would not have worked at that time i can very fully believe that tom defalco was somebody who knew those things and thought those things the same way chris claremont did but speaking them to wizard magazine in that moment was not going to have the same effect that it would today to a crowd of queer people at comic conference and you know one of the first things i said in this conversation was if you believed wizard magazine you might be suspect yourself yeah there you go and how much can we believe the magazine that's telling us what's cool and hip with a corporate backing like that's even part of it and it's something that i've found myself really fascinated by as we've continued our discussion of what this show is going to be and i'm going to get to that in a minute but we're definitely going to touch in on these wizard one halves and zero issues in just a minute but i want to hop back one second and i want to touch on a major hallmark now in this giant conversation about tom defalco and this semi-famous interview from wizard that we've sourced so much material from i want to point out that the basis for this story and this only came to me thanks to discussing the original interviews and stuff but wasn't the whole point of this universe what if the Marvel Universe had aged in real time and then wasn't our biggest problem with the MC2 universe that in fact they never let the characters age at all? I really did wonder about that as we were talking through this. I think it's really, it just goes to show you that there are blessings and curses about writing comic books that are inescapable. It's a really complicated conversation because I believe that there was a positive intention to draft 
craft a competent and well-argued position on the Marvel Universe aging in real time. But one of the things that we often forget when we work to create a moment that reflects a single idea is then that moment is going to get trapped there. You struggle to create an evolving reflection. You know, it. you wind up down this kind of rabbit hole of yourself. And even if a billion things go differently, you're always going to be forced to compare to that standard again because the MC2 told a story about the Marvel Universe aging in real time. I actually would have loved to have seen the final issue be what if the MC2 had aged in real time and it was 13 years later and you were now dealing with a 28-year-old Mayday Parker because 13 years later, that's how fucking old she would have been. Yeah, and that what a great, rather than the end that we got to return to this idea. And you know, I think you could have been a little tongue-in-cheek about it. Like what if we had actually pulled it off? What if we had actually been able to keep up this idea of aging in real time? Or, you know, similarly, what if we had actually been able to hold to this continuity stuff? Because that's the other thing. It was supposed to be more aging in real time, and it was supposed to be we're not so bogged down by previous Marvel Universe's continuity. And both things really just went out the window because this is what Marvel does month to month, and that is why we buy the comics. It's it's inescapable because nobody is saying like, oh man, I love the way everybody writes, but I really wish these characters were aging in real time and they never reference their pasts. Like even people who say they can't read comic books because of the dense continuity, what they're actually saying is please help me get past that so I can start reading, not please erase it because that is the only way I will start. You know, the big thing that I've really enjoyed about this experience is coming to have a better sense of how my comic reading was formed and we and you know it's that rabbit hole that we talk about a lot on this show we mentioned slingers the other day and so now i'm on a real kick for it it's this 90s book that is so 90s and it never really gets off the ground yet it does everything it means to do but it never does anything it's so 90s and it's about four people who all use costumed aliases previously used by spider-man for a specific arc that was again Tom DeFalco and there was an issue zero and I got thinking about issue zeros which were a wizard thing they it had an issue one half which uh, was a big wizard thing wizard magazine did issue one halves and you know there's also issue zeros and they're you know Marvel did the negative one month and they also did like point one for several years and it's crazy but issue one halves were these a little bit behind the scenes kind of sort of that you could buy from wizard for way too much money really they were like $9.95 $14.95 and like comics were usually two bucks so when you're already buying a five dollar wizard magazine part of why they were such high cost was because of the low print run so the cost of printing it was more and something that occurred to me that I hadn't really thought about was wizard did a one half for spider girl and a zero for wild thing and I kind of thought a little bit more about what that means and how Generation X had one and the second volume of Daredevil by Kevin Smith had one and there was a really famous one for Earth X and a bunch of the heroes reborn and return stuff got one and one of the last major major ones was Ultimate Spider-Man and there's even like a Buffy one every fucking version of Randy Queen's Dark Child has one there's something so interesting about the way that stuff like Wizard Magazine which was the way you got comic news and 
the way you got comic stories informed us by producing these other things. The power of telling us something is popular and how, I mean, to be honest, like Slingers ultimately is gone in 12 issues. It has the most unbelievably conceptual number one. And then issue zero is kind of super necessary. I don't think issue one makes sense without issue zero. And the series is over at issue 12. It's never reprinted. But if you were to look at the optics on this, that it's a, you know, there's, I'll explain another time, but there's four versions of issue one inside issue one. This zero is literally required reading. It's like trying to watch Twin Peaks without watching the pilot. And it's never reprinted ever. But back in 1998, those covers were everywhere. Those characters were everywhere. That issue zero was everywhere. And Spider-Girl sort of surviving despite that same engine. I don't know. There's something really shaping the way I'm experiencing these stories in retrospect by learning how these stories were put on me as a reader when I was younger. I don't think I chose to engage these stories the way I would choose to now. And doing this sort of research to understand the bigger picture of how I came to understand these stories really is affecting me. It's, I think we're really just scratching the surface of the ideas that we have gotten at as we have delved further out of MC2 as just something that we're kind of deep diving and reading and understanding this idea of symbolic totemic core character stuff like that we are really investing a lot in how characters come to be created it's more than just like how is a female version of Wolverine informative of the idea of Wolverine but how do things like one halves published about a character contribute to a reader's not just historical understanding of them but of any of a broader understanding that you would have going back and reading these things finding them and discovering them you know in 2022 when they came out almost 30 years ago it's an exciting thing to be able to be like okay kind of sort of even though we're staying with the spider thing i feel like our time on spider girl is done like more or less yeah and our time on thunderstrike is done and he was one of the big threads you know we said goodbye to american dream a really long time ago and looking back at like the ways in which spider girl is just the tip of the iceberg and that's why i'm you know a little bit behind the scenes uh you know tk and i talk all day whether it's our chatter our group discord with you know the rest of the expat gang or our group discord with kevo you know we just talk all fucking day and i think i've brought up slingers every hour on the hour for six days i can confirm it and uh i'm so cute when i'm annoying right big bro right so i i think part of why i love it so much is because it's the spider girl that didn't work (laughs) and realizing that that really is like there's so many spider girls that didn't work out there let's get on them i i'm excited man it feels like oh this is so fucking stupid oh my god it feels like it's an x's for podcast world and we're just out here hanging loose and slamming heat you know i don't think that's 100 crazy i think we find these things the other thing i'll say is yes they are the spider girls that didn't work insofar as they did not get 200 issues but like ripcord shows up in the loan like these are all characters that if you if an artist showed up at marvel and they were like we want to hire you write whatever you want he or she might have read this book and been like i want to use these characters and this could be their time there's so much stuff that has been published in the last since the start of marvel comics but like in the last 30 years that all of us grew up with that we're all creatives that would be really cool for us to use and a lot of it reckons with not just our understanding of comics from when we were kids but like our cultural understanding of 
the world that we got from reading comics. And that's what we're going to explore as readers finding this stuff. That's what Nico and I are going to explore. But I really encourage everybody to play around with it as not just stuff that you can understand as a reader, but as a creative. What would you do with this group of characters from the 90s who are no longer at all relevant, but there's no reason they couldn't be again? And how would you tell that story? I would tell it with, I hope, the open heart that Tom DeFalco had, because I don't think he exactly had an open mind. And that was shown in the painful resistance to embracing most ideas that came after the start of the MC2, with the ultimate exception of Aranya, who's irresistible. Try and tell her no. I mean, Fabian couldn't, right? Yeah, I'm going to miss you, MC2. It was it was a wild ride. It was crazy. The times over the summer, we were like, we can't stop recording. We have to keep reading. And then the times we were like, if I have to read one more fucking Spider-Girl crime story, I'm going to cry. There we is... did take some big breaks. We did. We did. There were like times where we were like, I can't do three more issues of Spider-Girl. And we took like two weeks off. Yep. It's been a lot of fun. And I'm really excited that we're definitely doing Spider-Geddon. We're definitely doing Edge of Spider-Verse, the return thing. We're doing Spider-Man by Dan Slott and Mark Bagley. We're doing uh, JMS's Spider-Man. And, you know, we'll reassess from there, right? Because I don't think we want to do all Spider-Man. I think, you know, we want to get out there and experience the world of this totemic symbology. This is that the person is that the heart of the character in all of the ways that matter, because as our consistent wild thing, Wolverine, Wolverine coverage indicates, it's not just one thing. It's about understanding how these characters have become their own tropes, how there can be Spider-Man India. Oh, can we do Spider-Man India? Let's fucking do Spider-Man India. Like I and Slingers. And so I really want to, man, I would love Slingers India. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Man, that ricochet would be so fucking hot. And I would be desperate if they would give me just like one badass Bollywood number. And thank you. And thank you, MC2. And, you know, Tom DeFalco and, you know, metafictional Spider-Girl. But like, thank you, TK. Oh, and all the listeners. No, you guys are the best. I can't believe the numbers on it. Like, I really thought you guys would have stopped listening at some point. The weirder it got, the better the numbers got. Thank you all. You're amazing. You're insane. We love you for it. We're insane, too. I'm going to start trying to do more, you know, Logan totems. And I'm going to start with Albert and LCD. I'm always going to start with Albert and LCD. I'm kidding. We don't. But, you know, I think we can find a lot more out there to play around with. And I'm excited. I, by the way, I, you know, we really haven't talked about this because I wanted to like sit down and talk about it, but I am already digging into Slingers. And I think you're absolutely right. It's a fucking great idea. And there's so many little things like that that I think we can dig into. And I hope you guys will continue with us on the journey. Well, until we come back, and I'm not getting emotional. It's just, you know, we've been doing this so long. I'm back into an allergy season. So, Teak, until we come back to, take another bite out of this fabulous fucking deep dive into what makes a character a character. Where can everybody find you online? You find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx and you know you can find me on X's for Podcasts also on Wednesdays and Fridays talking about all my favorite books new and old. You guys can find me those same X's for Podcast places plus you can find both of us over on the Billy Club our examine over on the Hubs Plus Network 
the partner channel for this series, where you can check out other shows like The Billy Club, my and Tori Sheehan's examination of all things Daredevil. It started out just doing the 60s comics, and now we do Daredevil news. It's the exact same thing that happened here, but we're sticking to just like Daredevil news over there. We're still in the 60s. We're just talking a lot about She-Hulk right now. Deal with it. And so you can also check out my material over at Nico Action on Twitter and Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Plus my original comic work at KidRiotComics.com and in the recently released Young Men in Love anthology. Amazing creators in there. I'm so proud and so grateful to be part of it. It's a really huge honor to be with some of the greats uh, of queer storytelling right now. Thank you so much. And until we come back to talk about Slingers, I... Yeah, that's what's gonna be. We we all know it, so I'm, get into it. I mean, it. yeah, I'm, I'm a problem, I guess. Guys, just get your reading ready. There's no way to read it, so you find a fucking LCS with a good back issue section and buy four copies of number one. Trust me, you need to. Uh until we sling it, right? And we'll slang it. And yeah, we're slanging heat now. That's what's happening. We do be slinging up in here. Yeah. Oof. So TK would make a great ricochet, I'm just saying. Um, Spider Girl, guys. Spider Girl out. I'm thank you so much, MC2. This was amazing. We'll see ya. We'll see ya. 